Hello, everyone. Nice to see you all. The sky is getting dark. Just a few weeks ago, it was light throughout the entire evening, and quickly it changes. So we're exploring this fourth foundation. Uh, it's a tremendous advantage and pleasure to be able to do this with and in the company of like-minded people, people who are interested in where and what this foundation means in relationship to their entire practice, but also how the, all the foundations work together systematically to bring us to this point. And as I usually like to do, I like to just briefly bring us through those foundations to arrive at the point we are now. And uh, I, I try to do it in different kinds of ways. Tonight I'd like to look at uh, the normal and everyday life of the mind as most of us know it, but perhaps a little less dense than many of the people who walk the land. And the, 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 the uh, complete enclosed way that the mind absorbs somebody into that world with attitudes and beliefs conjectures and opinions and views and that virtually everything that we see and everything that we think about is just a reflection back of our own thoughts of our own reactions of our own ways of seeing and it all gets enclosed like one of those paper weighted bubbles with little people in there that you shake with the snow and they think that they, oh the it's snowing you know never realizing that they're being shaken by so this, this sense of being enclosed within, this density of ourselves, this density of thoughts compounding upon emotions and emotions forming attitudes and attitudes asserting a, a, sun, a deep level of self-assumption and those assumptions being protected and defended by uh, various actions and guards and defense mechanisms and fears all of this, it's, it's amazing, it's amazing that any of us ever see the light of day. It's amazing that we ever come out of that. It's so conclusive, it's so complete, it's so total, it's so encompassing, believable, and yet some of us do. Somehow we become less dense. And some of us become less dense just through the wisdom of life, I think. I wouldn't uh, say that uh, that isn't without its resources. It brings about a kind of, of level of sophistication and, uh, and elderly wisdom that can be very helpful in uh, understanding the orientation of life and one's place within it. Uh, but there's also this beautiful system that the Buddha has set up to allow us to become less dense through the process if we're willing to look. And we start out very densely associated with our body and minds and we sit down with ourselves. When I did the beginning course or do the beginning course, which I'm in the process of now, uh, most of those uh, people in the room, they're just, uh, they're just trying to survive, really. They're just trying to have some breathing space in their life. They're coming for some sense of relief from the burden and stress and tensions that they live with. And they're just gulping or gasping for air. Uh, and, and so, too, uh, I take them into the body, much as the Buddha did in our first foundation. He takes us into the body, into the very heart of that density. We're, we would love to have a system early on that would give us an out-of-body experience so we could get farther away from ourselves. We would love to have the forever vacation of some kind of image that would satisfy the problem and give us the calm and tranquility we desire and never touch our lives again with any kind of truth uh, and just let us to escape it. But uh, that's not the system that we're working in. And, Eventually, we have to come back into ourselves. We have to deal with the scar tissue of our lives. We have to look at the way the mind constantly is rebelling and the conditioning frame of reference that it keeps 
relating to virtually everything in my mind and outside of it. And we have to start working with the very pieces that we have thought that we would escape from, the very density itself. And as we embody ourselves and we sit there and we start feeling the life that lives and runs through the veins without reconditioning that density back into what we see, lo and behold, the skies begin to clear. We feel less dense. The skies clear. Light, a little bit of light gets through. Not enough so that we can see or perceive from much of a vantage point, but still something. It lightens up just a little bit. We have learned to live within ourselves. We have learned to live with our body. And as we progress through the foundations and to the second foundation, we learn not to take ourselves with such an exaggerated importance because we arise out of a feeling tone. And when I look at a feeling tone, what is it? And when I look at what arises around a feeling tone, it's simply a story that I've taught myself to say. And so as we take ourselves, or take ourselves apart, we see that we don't have to take ourselves quite as seriously as we once did, and it lightens that up. And then we are allowed to see the mind from a different vantage point entirely, where we're no longer adding any complicated factors or reactions to the mind. We're just taking the mind as it is. It's just this in the third foundation, just this. And suddenly, there's a sense of burden that's removed even from, even from the earlier foundations. And now it can be, and each of these foundations are lifetime lived. They're not passed through and checked off and went, gone into the next. They each, they each merge into the next. And you can bring all of them into one or you can actually move through each one as, uh, as our uh, practice uh, goes forth. And this third foundation, which establishes the uh, primary sense of wonder and awareness. Before, in the body and with the feelings and the seeing the complications of the feelings and the stories that are coming around the feelings and the heaviness of the body and the emotional dullness and all of that, all of that was very much about form, is really much about kind of having a relationship with form that is more settled, less discursive, less reactive, just more settled with ourselves. And now, suddenly in this third foundation, some real breakthrough occurs because the form is now just very slender, very thin representation of mind, just a very, just a very uh, nuanced and almost ghost-like because states of mind aren't allowed, because we are perceiving them as they arise, aren't allowed to form and encrustate themselves around that full narrative and that full bleakness and, and scope of, of density. And so there is now space that's available where there wasn't any before. And there may still be a strong sense of identification, but it has been questioned. And there have been great gaps within that continuation of self that leaves one wondering about the possibility of, of, real, of really seeing the end of this practice, the fruits of this practice. And now the fourth foundation, the Buddha brings it full on. Full on. In fact, he now highlights the space above all else. This is the primary. This is the primary now. This is what he's been talking about forever, really. Everything that up until this point has been to just develop a sufficient relationship where we aren't further burying ourselves within the density and scope and reactivity of our conditioning. Just giving us enough air so that there can be a little bit 
of realization here that seeps through and the wonder of that realization. And now he takes off with this next. He just takes off. He just, he just casts us free. And he suggests now that the embodiment of the formless is where this practice goes. Not the embodiment of form any longer. The embodiment of form, the relationship to form, the release of the reactivity of form, that was to get us so that the balloon began to rise. And now when it starts taking off, it's a sight to see. Because form up until this point has represented everything that has been seen in our life, smelled, felt, taste, touch. Everything that materializes, including thought, is form. But that which sees is the formless. The formless is what is seeing all of that. And that's why it's so difficult to get a sense of formlessness at all in our life because the seeing is continuous. It's not as if we can look at the seeing. The seeing is. And all we ever see is form. We can't see the seeing. We can just see the form. And we keep identifying with the process of seeing and say, I see. I see. Oh, I know. I smell. I taste. But when there's just a little less focused on the sense of self, then there's just seeing. And he brought us very close to that departure in the third foundation. But now he casts us off into the just seeing, just seeing, and the fourth. We realize that form, the sense of embodiment of myself, holds itself together through the tension of denial, the denial of the formless. We so wish to remain in form that we deny the parts of ourselves, the part of ourselves that is truly expansive and truly spacious. Because we get so used used to working it from the sense of form. I remember an old uh, newspaper article. It was a young boy of about three who lived in northern Minnesota. And it was, uh, it was reported that the mother had turned the child out on the coldest winter day uh, to freeze, just naked. And uh, the neighbor, of course, had found the child half frozen. And uh, it was determined that that was uh, the fault, deliberate fault of the mother who wanted to kill her child. And the court scene was that they were taking the child away from the mother. And so I remember uh, the court clerk was held the child and was taking the child away from the mother who sat a, a few feet away from the child. And the child was leaning towards the mother uh, because that was the only world he knew. And you just saw this picture of the child who had just been abused by his mother, leaning for his mother, as the, and knowing that he was being taken away from the only world that he had any recognition of. You see, that's why form is so adhered to. It feels so important to us. It's because for most of us, it's the only world that we have known. Not only in this particular frame of, frame of reference, but our species. There's a genetic predisposition towards wading in. And we would all wade in forever if, there weren't, if it weren't for a minor flaw. And the fact that form is only half the equation of life. There has to be a flaw when you assert your whole energy into only half of the truth. And that flaw, in various and sundry ways, 
is the flaw of feeling incomplete. It's an itch we cannot scratch, no matter what we do. We can temporarily scratch it, but it keeps itching. And we just keep finding new ways to scratch it and new uh, excuses for why the scratch isn't completely, the itch isn't completely scratched. Right? Oh, the environment, it's the situation, it's the circumstances. It's, I had it all together, but I just wasn't up to it in that moment. And it's either self-blame or other blame. And this keeps us from recognizing the flaw for what it is. The flaw is because we are partial in something that's very total. And anytime you assume part of the truth, you're going to have a flaw. And that's what most of us carry in our life, is this tension within ourselves that something isn't completely right, but we self-blame it, or other blame it, or circumstances. I didn't have the right parents, and if you had the parents that I had, on and on we go as a way to excuse what's inherent in the fact that we are, li we are limited in the perception of how we see the world. The world can never right itself because we only, we force the world into a, a very limited and dense form. Meanwhile, it's being bathed literally in the formless. It's being held, it's being nurtured, it's being at all times surrounded. But the surround that we refuse to see is because we claim ownership of the very thing that surrounds everything. Oh, I see you. The seeing is self-claimed and self-proclaimed. The seeing has nothing of you within it. Nothing. That's consciousness. That's something far, that far outseeds what form can possibly engender and deliver. But as we begin to perceive form without running from it, a couple of things we notice. One is that when we run from it, the reaction of turning away from something makes it into something, makes it into a more of a dense problem of more of a dense of something and the less we run from it and I mean by running from it running from it in thought running away from it and means aversion to something in thought and as we that tension grows as we try to turn away from some part of life that's the reality of life that's actually occurring this tension creates a harder sense of what we are running from and a denser sense of us who is running. And as we do just the opposite, which is the way the Buddha is aligning these foundations, we see that with more ease and less narrative and story about what it is that we're running from, about the body, about the mind, or about any facet of our reality whatsoever, we see that there's more ease, that there's lightness, that both the thing that we have been so adverse to suddenly isn't so such a bad, it isn't so bad. And us, the sense of us, and our willingness to stay lightens up as well. And we develop more space, more space. And as this continues to be understood and the direction pointed in that way, we get even lighter and lighter and lighter. And there are moments we will feel, if we haven't already, in which there is virtually the same essence of what is perceived and what the perceiver who is perceiving. So that form, taking your full circle here, 
in some mysterious way is created mentally through reaction, through the need for it to be something, and stops becoming or being something when there is no longer that need. And then we begin to see the essence, the, the zero, the sum zero of everything. Meanwhile, form, which was exclusive because it built its it built its stake on the density of excluding things from it, right? That's how it stays dense, is by resisting or grasping the world, which are both dependent relationships to the world, only survived as a form because of its neediness. Meanwhile, formlessness Formlessness was all-inclusive. And that is the reason that Dharma is always inclusive, because we're moving from form to the formless. And if you exclude anything, you're back into form and the retaliation of one part against another. And that'll never, that strategy of avoidance and grasping can never bring us to any sense of space or freedom or formlessness. And the Buddha is teaching us this. Now he's teaching us this in a very interesting way. Not only through the meditation of the four foundations, because each foundation really asserts less and less resistance to what's arising, but he also does it by, an, by a proclamation of extraordinary value that I just want to recap again uh, called the Kalama Sutta. I did it just briefly on the last talk and I just wanted to spend a little more time with this because for me, this is, he, what he's doing is, he's, is he's, he's resolving the sense of dependency. Uh, and historically, uh, the texts say that the, the Kalamas were a, a tribe of people, a, a group of people, who had a lot of spiritual uh, figureheads passing through their territory, each proclaiming that they're the ones that knew the truth. And here comes the Buddha, and, and maybe the 12th on the list for that year of, of proclaimers. And so they go to the Buddha and they say, Buddha, you know, how do we know to believe in you? Why should we believe in you? You're one of lots of people who come through here. And the Buddha says, don't. And that must have been the first time they'd heard that because it startled them. But he goes on. He says, Do not go upon what has been acquired by repeated hearing, nor upon tradition, nor upon rumor, nor upon what is in the scripture, nor upon surmise, nor upon axiom, nor upon plausible reasoning, nor upon a bias towards a notion that has been pondered over, nor upon another's seeming ability, nor upon the consideration that this must be my teacher. Kalamas, when you yourself know, undertaken, and have observed, these things are good. These things lead to benefit and happiness. Then you enter and abide in them, free of dependency. He just did away with himself. To me, that reveals above anything else his true realization. Because it's such a proclamation of what the practice, where the practice has to go. This absolute freedom from dependency. Dependency of external authority is where he is basically 
pushing this, the elimination of any external dependency on form. Just don't believe it. Don't do it. Because somebody says, because the text, all of the ways that form looks for certainty of its spiritual longing, its texts, its teachers, its religious symbols, the Buddha is saying, none of those, none of those. Pay, don't pay attention to any of those. They're all worthless. I think a little more dose of Buddha in this stew of Buddhism would be very helpful sometime. <laughs> because th this undermines about 90% of what we read and hear. Because everybody seems to be proclaiming the text or the scriptures or what the Buddha said. And how could you dispute what the Buddha said? And he's pointing to something far richer and deeper and more meaningful and something that we should never waver from. And we can analyze and think or feel or res resonate with the truth, but this is a realized truth, not a resonating truth. Resonation just res to resonate with the truth merely means that it feels right to you. But feeling right isn't the end. The realization of the truth is the end. And it requires far more than a sort of a distant sense that it must be right. It feels so true. It needs another step in here. No external authority. So a question that seems to come from that sutta for me is, what is this seeing depending upon? Is this seeing my observation, the way I look, what I realize, what I see, what I understand? Is it coming because the text told me? Because that's what has been written or the teacher said it? Those are all ways that the formless get caught in the form. There are ways to assuage our doubt because the doubt is the last problematic obscuration of the formlessness. Because who are you? Who are you in your identity to think that you're sacred and holy? How can you, th you see, even the Buddha at the time when he was sitting down resolving to awaken, his mind came at him. Who are you, Buddha? Who is this form, this sense of incompletion that is still being felt within form? Who are you to proclaim anything sacred? That's, that's a very strong argument. <laughs> If you haven't realized that strength of that argument yet, and then you, all of a sudden you curl up, we curl up behind the assumptions that we still hold about ourselves, the limited way we see ourselves, the truth of how we actually believe ourselves, and the strength of those assumptions against the possibility of releasing those assumptions into the formless. It simply doesn't hold up for most people. We get pulled back into it. And that's why all along the way, we are looking at those assumptions. We've been doing this now for years. And what do those assumptions look like? How do we know where they are? Merely by tracing ourselves back to the pain of our belief system. When the pattern, and they all resolve themselves into a sort of a pattern, or to an activity that tries to compensate for that pattern, there are two ways to know them, through the activity of compensation or through the pattern's pain itself. 
But both of those we can trace back to the pain of the assumptions that led to the conclusion that we draw on again and again. It's the water we feed upon. It's the well of choice. And it's what holds us, it's poisonous, because it holds us to ourselves whenever we go there to drink. And unless and until we are very deliberate in our willingness to go there and look, and to really look in detail, to look with curiosity and with interest, because with curiosity and interest, curiosity and interest does not come from your form. It comes from the formless. So you use the formless of curiosity and interest to uproot the form. And you can claim all you want to, how well you did, and getting rid of that problem you had, but it wasn't you at all. It was your sincerity of heart. It was the sincerity of heart from which formlessness, which came and was derived from formlessness. In fact, we can call formlessness the heart because everything that's blameless, what did he say? Beneficial and happy. Inter anything that leads to the benefit and happiness will come from that. Not from the division and density of myself. So if we're going to enter in a teaching and truly feel its benefit and happiness, we, it's true happiness, not its, not its conditional happiness. It's real joy. we realize it's not coming from us. That we don't have that in us to do that. We don't have it in the mind. The mind does not have the capacity for that depth. We keep claiming ownership of it, but if we just free that up a little bit, you'll see it immediately. We never had the capacity for that degree of sincerity or honesty or love or caring. And you can see in populations of people, it's very interesting, really. You know, they don't have to be Buddhist meditators at all, but there's this love that starts coming out of them for the climate, perhaps, or for each other, or service work. I saw that in hospice care. You can see it in any kind of, of service-oriented work. That somehow life has brought them to, and where the formless is, be, is moving through them, they're still claiming reference, but the formlessness, the, the density is much less. There's much less density in it. And interesting enough, when the density gets less, when the, when the love and the caring expands outward, they all, almost uniformly become nicer people easier to get along with, just fun to be with, not so and you can get a feeling that the population in general, some populations in general are moving through this without any sense or connection to Buddhism whatsoever. Now there's still a film there of self and unless that is addressed unless we can uproot the very assumptions that keep us within ourselves, then quite likely there won't be a full break from form. But you'll have a good-hearted person. A good-hearted person. But besides just the tyranny of the authority of external factors, the teachers, the texts, and all the way I give, give myself over to them for dependency, because that's what form does, remember? It, it's dependent. It can't stand alone because it's incomplete. So it looks for something to tie itself to for completion. It looks for the prophet, you know, the one. 
But once we have settled that, which takes a considerable amount of time and a lot of understanding not to give ourselves away to every passing figure that comes through Seattle or wherever we're from, we still have the tyranny of the inward authority. And the inward authority, that's the authority of our own thoughts. That's the authority of our own logic. That's the authority of our own opinions. That's our dogma. That's our, that is the way we perceive life. The way we have made life to be what it is and ourselves within. And that has a hold on us that is profound. Now many of us have sort of tampered with this a little bit in our lives. We've played with it. We're quieting down a little bit. We feel more lighthearted. And, but have we really been willing, willing to clear out some of that rubbish? To see the opinions we hold is no better than the opinions that somebody else holds that may be very adverse to the, very, the ones we we have that virtually all opinions are equal and that every idea is just an idea a perception a limitation of a complete way of seeing and that everything that I have formed around that way of seeing has been built upon the logic of my conditioning what I have been told or more importantly tell myself over time and that this has been built up systematically day, moment after moment after day after year after decade. And that it's quite now complete in what it says about ourselves and our potential and very limiting in its prospects. And we feel very uh, sensitive to that issue of our own limitation because we believe in it so strongly. And this is the inward authority that the Buddha is also pulling the life from. This is a complete proclamation of independence. Independence. How is this scene be dis being distorted in this moment? What is this scene depending upon? And you can see, if you're willing, the formlessness through discernment, which we have talked about, sees what it's depending on. If you're quiet enough, you can see what, what arises when, a when something is questioned, when something is seen. You can see the memory. You can feel the approach or avoidance of something. You can feel the feeling tone. You can f get a sense of the story we have told about ourselves. All of that is the inward authority of the form. None of this is beyond our capacity. But here is what is necessary. We have to want it. People who don't really want it will work very hard to try to want it. But that's not the same as wanting it. If you want it, you don't have to try very hard. And the way wanting arises the wanting I'm looking at, the longing arises, is through the active discernment of questioning the authorities that we're already hooked within. What is distorting this moment? What am I doing in this moment? What is this scene dependent upon? How is this scene being distorted? Just to ask that question, just 
And just through the willingness to exercise that curiosity, that interest, there arises within us a tremendous sense of yearning for completion in its absolute term, not in its relative. Because we re realize that the sacred simply can't be found in the way that we're working the world. It just is not available to us. As I mentioned in the last talk, the best we can do is to see symbols that relate to a possibility of the sacred. And to perform rituals that somehow hold some extension to the sacred. And it's also interesting that in the Buddhist lore, when somebody awakens, rituals are uprooted. They no longer are believed in whatsoever because you've seen what the sacred is front and center. And you no, longer, you no longer depend upon an intermediary between you and what is sacred. A priest, a ritual, a prayer, a mantra, a mandala, those all go. And for the first time, often from a seeming mistake, we didn't ask for it. It just happened to us. We don't even know the right way it works. But once that occurs, there's no turning back. And some of us here in the room have been etched. It's like taking a diamond and etching glass with the diamond. Now, every time you look out that window, you see this etch. You can't ever look out the window again without seeing that etch. There's no more pretending. There's no more absolute pretending. There's periodic forgetting, but no more absolute forgetting. Now, before I get too far from this, I want to bring back the place of study because I've the Buddha's word seems to eliminate that entirely. But the Buddha also said that one can have insight through reading. But it's how we read. If we read like a glutton, just because it feels so good to hear the words and the words sound so in, enjoyable to read, that's not so beneficial. But if you read a little bit, and let your experience move into the words, realization can occur. And so my suggestion, if you're going to read something of someone else's wisdom, don't take it on in, as a memory that you can then spout, which will just increase the density of your form, but rather as a working koan question for you and your own realization. What do you mean by that? What's the, what is that? Because what form will do with that question is try to resolve it back into form with an answer. That's form's resolution is to find an answer. What formlessness loves is the wonder of the question. In Zen, they say, if you meet the Buddha on the road, kill him. 
You see what that means? You see that to move forward along those roads, you can't depend upon anyone, anything. any text, any teacher. And if you get arrested through your enamoring of a teacher, then you're stuck in form. And so we just move through, move through everything. It's like an icebreaker moving right through the icy waters. Free discovery, free inquiry. Going towards aliveness. Formlessness knows the way. It's guiding us. Because you begin to develop such a sensitivity to how form resolves itself back into form. The density, quality of how form keeps bringing itself back into, sh into a shape. into a context, into a, an answer. And that just isn't fulfilling. It's fulfilling when you receive the answer in the immediacy of getting the answer. It's fulfilling, but in the next minute, it's like you're back just knowing that's all you've got left. That's all that was given to you when the answer arrives is now that you have your knowing. And that's the form's limitation is that it knows everything. And now you feel in another piece with a more knowing. And so ultimately it makes us more dense, not less. But inquiry. What is this scene depending <clears throat> upon? How is this scene being distorted in this moment? Okay. Can we just sit for a minute or two? The next series I'm going to do is going to be on the fundamentals because now we've, we went off the high dive. We keep going off the high dive here for the rest of the year. I want to bring you back. Some of you seem or sensed, I sensed being lost. But I want to complete this. I want us to feel the journey, the journey and completion. And as I have said, every week that we have gone, been on the fourth foundation, and we'll probably say every week hence, if you're discouraged, something is missed. You're missing something. If you're wondrous, and well, I have no idea what he's saying, but I think he's saying something. And if I can just stay around what he's saying, maybe I can realize it a little bit. But if you get discouraged, that's your doubt. That's your form blocking your way. And to look at that, so let us, let's, let's look at that. Let's hold it, see it, feel it, look at the root causes, the assumptions that on which it's based. But discouragement does not move us forward. Wonder does. The person who's innocent and goes, oh, I don't understand a thing. That's amazing. I don't understand a thing. He's saying a bunch of words, and I don't have a... That is much closer than somebody says, oh, I've lost, I can't do this. Much closer. <laughs> so don't let yourself go that direction. Just don't. Okay. Questions or comments about anything? If you don't mind... Uh, your questions being concise or uh, short so that I can repeat them uh, to the camera if you have any questions. Yes. 
Yes, Rachel. <laughs> Yes. Uh, a lot of the doubting, the, yeah. the unworthiness. Yes. Yes. And I couldn't, I just couldn't bring, find the curiosity. It, no. It, there was a, there, it was like a inertia. Right. There was, right. And, and the today, of course, I've got space around it. Right. Is there a benefit to, you know, after the fact? Yes. Yes. So her question has to do with uh, some uh, density that happened to her yesterday in which she was totally caught up in the doubting and the discouragement and the attitude and just the whole fixation that we will go through. And then today there's much more lightness, much more space. And your question is, uh, is there usefulness in going back and kind of bringing it up again? So let me just say, first of all, the importance is that after you go through these things every once in a while and see that they come out, you know, in the middle of them, they don't seem like they'll ever come out. You'll ever come out of it. But here you are. So in the middle of them, the next time, there'll be a, just a slight doubting of the doubt because it's circumstantial. Obviously, if it were true, it wouldn't have cured itself today. It was circumstantial. Certain things happened to you. Certain conditions arose. And these arose within you from those conditions. Change the conditions, a different sense of you arises. Right? So you get a sense that mostly our states of mind are conditionally arising. But we believe in every one of them as an absolute truth within that forever, a forever truth, don't we? So it's a very important to see that they're limited, finite, conditional, etc. That's important. Second question is, like, I have found it to be useful myself at times to conjure up what was happening yesterday that led to that discouragement or doubt. And to re-feel it, because you'll feel it in the present through memory. You can actually bring that feeling back up where you didn't have the strength or energy then to be able to explore it. You may well have today as you re-look at it, re-look at it and, and just in remembrance, and then just explore, just feel it, explore it, see what the self-truths, because states of mind that hold the most, the deepest density are all based in self-truths, truths about, that you believe about yourself. And we want to know what those are. So you've got to take your ear and put it to your heart to see what those truths are and to listen to them. I had one woman uh, in Portland retreat. I just got back from Portland. Did I just get back from Portland? <laughs> Where's Ellen? Was it? I did. <laughs> wow, that's weird. Anyway, whoa. <laughs> uh, so one woman in Portland, uh, you know, kept getting uh, in the retreat, she just kept having these enormous, discouraging, uh, doubting, and just and she would, it just darkened, you know. And she it, finally, as the retreat went on, she said, um, "You know, I'm tired of this. I really, I, I really want." And I, you could feel that she really wanted it. And so we sat together and explored these things, and she, and she, it was actually bodily how much fear there was and in going into some of these assumptions about herself because from her perspective she had invested whole whole life's energy into them being true and and so it took a willingness it's not curiosity at that point it's like I'm fed up you know I don't have anywhere to go so I'm not very curious about this thing but I don't have anywhere else to go so you get kind of backed into it right and at that you'll look at it. As you look at it and some of the reactivity uh, gets expelled, you get interested in it. Interest is directly proportional to the lack of personalization. So the less personal something is, the more interest you'll have. 
at first it's very personal and it hurts and it's about you and it doesn't feel curious and you're not interested in it at all. You just want to get rid of it. That's form in its worst disguise of trying to be non-judgmentally hatred of this particular pattern that it wants to be completely clean of, right? That's okay. You're, that's what form does. It judges. It judges, it reacts, and all of us, and so not very much is cleaned out when you go into it with that set of judgmental conditions, but some does. A little bit does. And then it lightens and a little less personalization, a little more interest, a little more curiosity, and the whole thing starts lightening up like that. Right? If you've done enough work on yourself so that you have a very clear sense of anatta, emptiness in yourself, these things are curious from the beginning. You don't have to go through this pile-on approach. And uh, it, they evaporate very quickly. When you're, because you just, like, what is that about? It's like, I can't believe I just said that to myself. What was that about? And then it just starts flushing itself out. So the long and the short answer of that, yeah, bring it back and see what, and then just, just feel it. And as you're feeling it, do a little writing, a little journaling about it. What are the things it's saying to you? What are the conditions it's emotionally saying? What are the attitudes that are arising? What are the self-assumptions that are there? Just do a little bit of journaling so that you can get a, some sense of perspe perspective and objectivity on it as well. Yeah? Yes, David. Oh, yeah, we all do. I am totally confused with the vision. But if formlessness exists, what's, what are all the forms that we're learning about? Like you know, Sangha, Buddha, Dharma, the Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Path, etc., etc. Do we just, does that not exist? And are we just there with the sunrise? And just like, no. <laughs> does anyone want to answer this? Because <laughs> I sure don't. No. <laughs> He's saying that uh, he feels like a very raw beginner, very confused, uh, which is a good thing. I'm glad he said that. He said, what are all these forms that we've been... If, if formlessness is the sacred, what are all these things we're using? The sitting meditation, the Four Noble Truths, all these teachings, what are we doing? Well, there are skillful forms and unskillful forms. There are forms that guide us in the direction of release of, the, of itself and forms that it create more adherence and grasping onto it. All right? So we're these, uh, anything can be either one. Meditation can be a way that the form builds upon itself or meditation can be used as a way to lessen the density of the form. At a certain uh, clarity, lack of density, you will realize that the formlessness, what the formlessness of the situation, you will realize the formlessness that holds everything. And so for most people, we need a practice or a way that can help us through, right? But the whole thing is driven by our sincerity and our honesty, not by the form. The form is neutral, really. It's neither good nor bad. It's the sincerity of wanting to see and how the form allows us or gives us the environment to see and our, then our willingness to see what the form is showing. The whole thing moves in accordance with our sincerity. Interestingly enough, as I mentioned, the sincerity is coming from the formless. And much of what drives us is coming from the formless. Certainly the awareness that we are claiming reference to, I'm being aware and now I'm not, that's not coming from you. So this sense of self is really riding the crest of the wave of the formless all the way. It seems they claim ownership to everything until you get a sense of, whoa, something here is pre-existing me, which is why I often suggest when you ask, you know, like is sleepiness, is awareness sleepy? Because then you get a sense of 
you in sleepiness, and you may get a sense of being mindful of sleepiness, but that's still you generating mindfulness of sleepiness, but then is awareness sleepy, which takes it out of your range and power at all. So what just happened here? Something just saw, and it wasn't me who saw. Yeah? Is awareness angry? See, it just, it just starts making it very permeable, porous, light. And then it just keeps... And it's the thing that drives us is your wanting to see and your willingness to see. And see and see and see and see. Seeing in the beginning, seeing in the middle, seeing in the end. That's all. And your willingness to go wherever the seeing takes you and to do whatever is necessary to see. That's all. So the seeing is the formless. And the formless is guiding the form through itself until everything rests in the formless. Okay, so now I've really confused you. Right? <laughs> it's much more interesting this way. <laughs> then if I just said, okay, here's what you have to do. You do 20 of these a day, <laughs> and this is what you'll become. Wouldn't it be awful? That's why, blue, that's why meditation or Buddhism is not a blueprint. It's not. It's just, it, you know, it just throws, throws it out there and all confused and everything. It says, see. Hmm? <laughs> What's that mean? And we have to learn what that means. First, we have to learn the difference between seeing and thinking. And that takes a long time. When am I seeing and when am I thinking about what I'm seeing? That takes a long time to learn the difference between those two things. And as that becomes more and more clear, pristine, the seeing becomes more, then you begin to see that the thinking was never a part of the seeing. It just was interpreted as being a part of the seeing. And that the seeing pre-existed the thinking. And I thought the thinking was what gave birth to the seeing. And that's the way it goes. It goes just like that. Candace, last question. Okay, so when something catches your phrase, she said the phrase I used in the talk, how is this scene being distorted? When a phrase like that catches you, use it. Because that's, you'll come upon these phrases every once in a while that, that jolt you. And now just apply it. Okay, how, how is this be, scene being distorted? Not how am I, that's throwing a, a mix into it. So how is this scene being distorted? Is it being distorted by my opinions? Is it being distorted by what I want? By what motivates me? Is it being distorted by what I've known this thing to be in the past? So I can feel the memory of it as a distortion of what it really is, you see? These questions are very subtle questions within observation, but also ones in which if you want to see them, they will be shown to you. Again, it's whether you want it or not. There's no substitute for intention. None. When I look at what some people do in the name of their practice because they don't have the intention, it just, because what they're doing may never bring that intention. What brings the intention is looking at what the limitation are, is, limitations are of what you're already doing. And you think, oh my God, I've been fooling myself. 
And then the energy that went into fooling yourself now goes into a wiser intention. It doesn't go into creating more and more difficult forms and practices for you. That's not how intention arises. It arises with, from seeing the faults as the faults. And that's the end of the evening. <laughs> okay, all. Good, thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.